This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. What a great morning to connect with God. Are you ready? Awesome. I got to tell you, the last song that we just sang. um, I come from the Midwest, and um, so we have a few farmer expressions. Can I lay one on you this morning? Okay. As the farmer would say, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's all wet. (laughs) Got it? Boy, when we sing to Jesus, you are stronger. You are stronger. That's my prayer, that we would get that. There's a reason we're walking through the last week of Jesus' life. Because I can tell you this, it's impossible for you and for me to walk through this life and to live in victory, to be prepared for death and to be prepared for the life that is to come without knowing Jesus. Does that make sense to you? He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the author of life. He's the King of heaven. He's the ruler of earth. He's your Savior, and He's my Savior. He's the only Savior the world will ever know. And if you go through this life, and you don't actually get to know Him, I'm not talking about believe in Him. I'm not talking about believe that He died, although those are important things. I'm talking about getting to know Him. If you don't know Jesus, you will have missed the heart of life. So we're going to take the next several weeks and we're going to walk through just one week in his life. I can tell you that easily um, the most meaningful day of my life that I've ever had in terms of getting to know Christ was the first time that I went to to the land of Israel. And one of the days that we were in Israel, we decided that we would walk through the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. We weren't going to ride through it on a bus. We were going to walk through it just like he did. So we started in the upper room. You'll learn about that later on in the week. And we had a wonderful communion service up there where Jesus ate the Last Supper with his 12 closest followers. And we sang a song maybe similar to the song that Jesus and his followers sang in that room. We prayed a prayer. We walked out of that place. And we walked down and through the streets of Jerusalem and then out the the city gate and down across the Kidron Valley and up to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we stood there probably among the very olive trees that Jesus prayed when he prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this pass from me. Remember that prayer? If you've been to church, you've probably heard that prayer before. That's where he was arrested. We walked back across the Kidron Valley and into the southern part of Jerusalem to where Caiaphas, he was the high priest, that was his palace. We walked into the, into up the steps, probably the very steps that Jesus walked as he walked into the, into the lower level of Caiaphas' palace. And after he was condemned in a mock trial, he was, he was kept in a, in a, a holding cell there, probably that very holding cell that we saw. And then, of course, they took him to Pilate, 
and we walked from Caiaphas' palace to, to Pilate's palace. It was at Pilate's palace that Pilate heard that he was from Galilee, so he said, I don't know anything to do with this guy. So he said, I'm going to send you to Herod. So we walked from Pilate's palace to Herod's headquarters. Herod wanted to see a miracle. When Jesus would do a miracle, he sent him back to Pilate, and we walked back to Pilate's palace. And then, and then we walked um, from there to where Pilate had him condemned, where he was beaten and he was flogged and they put the robe on him and the crown of thorns. And then we walked from there to Calvary and we walked from there to where the tomb was. You know, there's something that happens when you and I can somehow get inside the skin of Jesus. It's my hope and my prayer for all of us as we walk through this sermon series, that we'll get to know Jesus better. Do you want to do that? Yeah. Because I will tell you this, the more that you get to know Jesus, the more you will be drawn to Him. And the more grateful you will be for what He's done for you. So this morning we're going to take the first step in that journey. We're going to talk about Jesus' grand entrance into the city of Jerusalem. It's commonly called the triumphal entry, and uh, we're going to do our best over the next few minutes to jump into that story, and then we're going to, we're going to take the latter part of our teaching time this morning, and uh, we are going to learn some lessons that, that will stand by us well in this life. Now, in order to understand the story, and I'm going to read it to you straight from the Bible, but before we jump into that, you have to know a little bit of the historical background. There are two questions that are just absolutely dominating the local news and the the conversation of people across the nation of Israel during the time leading up to Jesus' death. And the first question is this. You'll see it up here on the screen. Who is Jesus? Everybody wants to know, because as of yet, Jesus hasn't revealed his true identity. And so there's great argument. The one thing that everybody agrees on is that he's a person of great influence, because wherever he goes, huge crowds of people are following him. And we're going to see just how big a little later this morning. But the real question is, who's empowering him? Is he... uh, prophet or a false prophet? There's a whole group of people who believe he's a genuine prophet empowered by God. There's another whole group of people who believe that he is genuinely a false prophet and that everything that he says and everything that he teaches is not to be trusted. In fact, it's not even to be believed. He's a danger to the people. Is he Empowered by heaven? Or is he empowered by hell? There's a whole group of people who look around and they say, He heals the sick. He heals the lame. He gives sight to the blind. And even on certain occasions, he raises the dead. And no one ever looked at people with such love. And no one ever cared about people so deeply. He must be from heaven. There's another group of people who say he casts out demons by the power of hell itself. 
in the name of Beelzebub, the ruler of hell. I don't care if he raises the dead. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. He's not a zealot. He's not an ordained priest. He's not a recognized teacher of the law. He doesn't fit anywhere into any of the religious hierarchy. He cannot be empowered from heaven because don't you think those of us who are religious leaders would have identified him as being coming as having come from heaven if he actually did? Don't trust him. He's from hell. Wow. There's a second question that's, that's on everyone's mind, and that is, what is Messiah like? The Jews understood that over and over and over again in the Old Testament that the Messiah was prophesied. They knew that. In fact, they knew that Isaiah himself gave somewhere between 200 and 250 individually distinct prophecies about the coming Messiah. He was the one that every Jew waited for. So what did they know about Messiah? Well, what they thought they knew and what turned out to be true were actually two different things. What they knew was that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. How do we know they knew that? Because when the wise men came and said, you know, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And King Herod said to the chief priests, hey, where's the Messiah to be born? They said, oh, in Bethlehem of Judah. They knew that. You know what's interesting? There were a number of people who rejected Jesus purely and simply because he lived in Nazareth. And they said, the Messiah doesn't come from Nazareth. Where does he come from? He comes from Bethlehem. There's a lesson in there for you and me. Did you know that most of the people who reject Jesus reject him because they just haven't done their homework? These people assumed that since Jesus lived in Nazareth, he must have been born there. But if they would have just cared enough to dig a little bit, they would have found out that he actually was born in Bethlehem. You ever watch one of those cop shows and they're trying to identify someone by their fingerprint? Right? And they bring up something on the screen that looks like a fingerprint and it's got these little dots and points, little square points all over it. Now, you know what they're doing, right? They're recognizing that there are certain points and certain intersections of the lines on a person's finger. And because a person's fingerprint is unique to them, if they can get enough of those dots to be in the same place, they recognize we have a match. Can we just employ that for a little bit with Jesus? If we were to go back and take the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah and begin to see how many of those Jesus fulfills, we could connect the dots. Am I making sense? And we would know the true identity of Messiah. 
What we're going to see today is Jesus takes the wraps off of his true identity. And in fact, he doesn't even personally do it. He allows the people around him to do it in a living parable. So now let's look at Jesus' grand entrance into Jerusalem. Take a look. As they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Bethphage was a tiny little village, five-eighths of a mile from Jerusalem. In fact, some historians considered it so much a suburb of Jerusalem that they said, you know, you could actually celebrate the Passover and eat the Passover lamb in Bethphage. It was the same as being in Jerusalem. All right? Tiny little village there on, on the slope of the Mount of Olives. Jesus um, sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them. And he sent them right away. Now, understand donkey. We're going to come back and talk about that a little bit. Uh, That's unusual. What would you expect to find Jesus riding? A horse, right? Okay. We'll talk about why he's riding a donkey because that's significant in the story. Secondly, Jesus refers to himself with what title there? Lord. Did you know if you read through the New Testament, rarely does Jesus ever call himself Lord, although often many other people do. But starting today, through the rest of this week, Jesus begins to identify himself as Lord. In fact, there are many titles used throughout our story this morning that the Jews understood applied only to the Messiah. And prior to this, when anyone would say to him, you are Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus would say, thank you. Now don't tell anyone that. And there's a reason for that. Because the Jews all believed in a political Messiah. One who would ascend a physical throne one who would lead them in victory over their physical enemies, and one who would allow the Jews to rule the world. And whenever anyone figured out that Jesus was the Messiah, he knew instinctively that their thought was he was going to do that. And was Jesus going to do that? Not a chance. So he would say, don't tell anyone. But Jesus also knew that by the time he died, it was important for everyone to know the truth about him, that he was actually the Messiah. So starting today, with his grand entrance into Jerusalem, never again does Jesus say, don't tell anyone that. In fact, he begins to declare that truth about himself. And here he says, Lord, referring to himself. Now he went on to say, this took place to fulfill What was spoken through the prophet. There's one of those connecting the dots things. And he goes back and he lifts a prophecy that's both in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Say to the daughter of Zion. Now here's something you need to know about Zion. Zion was the chief mountain upon which the city of Jerusalem was built. So any time that the Bible talks about Zion, it is at the same time referring to the city of Jerusalem and by extension to the entire nation of Israel. In the same way that Washington, D.C. is symbolic of the entire United States. Everybody on board with that? Okay. So say to the daughter of Zion, see, I want you to circle, underline that word see. 
We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why did I have you underline that word see? Because it doesn't actually mean to look at. It doesn't actually mean to visualize. That word see sometimes is translated behold. Basically what it says is wake up and pay attention because if you're not looking, you're going to miss this. You got it? What was it they were going to miss? Well, here's what the Jews did. Here's how they read this passage. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you. And they never read the rest of the passage. They completely missed the fact that he would come. What's the very next word? Gentle. That didn't fit their term for a Messiah. And he was going to come not riding on a horse, but a... And not even a donkey on what? The colt of a donkey. Wake up. Here's one of those really unique and identifying characteristics by which you can identify the Messiah himself. He would come riding into Jerusalem, gentle, one translation says humble, riding on the colt of a donkey. Not what you would usually expect for the king. Wow. A little bit. Remember what the angel said to the shepherds? You go into the city of Bethlehem and you will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying where? In a manger. Pretty easy to find that baby from all the others, right? Of course. Pretty easy to identify this king from all the others. He's riding not even just on a donkey, on a colt of a donkey. Let's go to the next part of the story. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. Now, interesting thing is, both Mark and Luke add to the story that we're reading here from Matthew that this was a colt that no one had ever sat on before. Anybody ever done that? That's an exhilarating experience. You will definitely get a lift. Yeah. It should have been the first clue to the people around them that when Jesus sat on the donkey and the donkey stood there peacefully and walked with him on its back, there's something going on here. Got it? That just doesn't happen. goes on to say, And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the ground. By the way, uh, one tra- most translations say palm branches, which is why the Sunday before Easter is usually called Palm Sunday, from that very thing. And they spread them on the, on the road, and the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed. So you got this giant group of people ahead of Jesus, and you got this giant group of people behind Jesus, and you got Jesus riding on this little colt of a donkey, and, and the mother donkey is, is beside this colt of the donkey, and Jesus is riding, and the twelve apostles are around him thinking, what's up with this? I mean, they'd never seen anything like this before. And people began to shout, Hosanna 
to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now that word Hosanna literally means, in the original, it meant, Lord, save us. It was a term always reserved for only God himself. All throughout the Old Testament. And when this crowd begins to shout, Hosanna to the Son of David, what are they saying they believe about Jesus? That he is God in human flesh. Not just a good teacher. Not just a great man. Not even just a prophet. But he is God in human flesh. They also use the term Son of David which was a term that they reserved only for the Messiah. So what are they confessing about Jesus? That they believe He is the Messiah. But they not only say that, they say, Hosanna in the what? You know what that means? That was a Jewish term that meant Hosanna in the heavens. They were saying, not only are we saying this about Jesus, but the angels in heaven are saying this about Jesus, that he is the son of David, that he is the Messiah, that he is God in human flesh. A little bit later in our service, you and I are going to have the opportunity to sing that very word, to sing Hosanna. And I want, and we're going to actually sing Hosanna in the highest as well. I want you to understand in that moment of time that you and I are joining with the chorus of the angels in heaven and we are singing praise to the one and only Savior of the world. Is that cool? Yeah, that's beyond cool. That's awesome. Let's read the next part of the story. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was moved. We'll go back to that scripture that just flashed onto the screen. Because historians tell us that when the Jews came to Jerusalem, and by the way, the Jews were coming to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Many of them would would stay outside the city because there were literally hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the world who would come to the city of Jerusalem and descend there for the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. This was on, on, on the fifth, fifth day prior to the actual Passover feast. So it was in that week. So these people would go out and, and stay in the neighboring communities. And then they would all come into the city of Jerusalem during the day for the festivities. You need to know this about the city of Jerusalem. It was built on Mount Zion. But Mount Zion was actually a smaller mountain than the mountains around it. There were mountains all around the city of Jerusalem. In fact, if you were to read Psalm 125, it says, As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord protects His people. So anytime you went into the city of Jerusalem, you had to go up a mountain, and then you went down the mountain, across a valley, and then you climbed back up a smaller mountain, Mount Zion or Mount Moriah from the Old Testament, to get into the city of Jerusalem. History records that as the Jews went down the hill, when they got to the valley and and they started up the mountain or up the hill that would lead them into one of Jerusalem's city gates, that they would begin to chant Psalm 24. This particular section, I want to go read it to us. It says, Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? 
Who will stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. Look at this next thing. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God their Savior. Does that sound good to you? That's pretty awesome. So here they are. They're all chanting this. But here's the next part of the psalm. They recognize that there's something that's going to happen in this city that doesn't have anything to do with them. It has to do with the Messiah. And as they got nearer the city gates, they would begin to say, Such people may seek you and worship in your presence, O God of Jacob. Open up ancient gates. Open up ancient doors. And let the King of glory enter. A clear prophecy of Messiah. He would say, open up ancient doors and let the king of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? And then they used, what's the next two words? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, invincible in battle. Open up ancient gates. Open up ancient doors and let the king of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of what? Heaven's armies. Oh, the Jews missed that. Even though they said it every time they came into the city for a feast, they missed it. They were continually thinking of Messiah as the Lord of Israel's armies. The Lord strong in battle. But what does it clearly say in Psalm 24? The Lord of what? Heaven's armies. He is the King of glory. Scene 3. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was moved. How large was this crowd? I want you to circle and underline the word moved because it's the same word for earthquake. In other words, they shook the city. The noise was so loud. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So much so, they actually shook the city. goes on to say the crowd uh, and, and, the, and the city asked... People, you know, if your city started shaking, would you come out of your house to figure out what was going on? Of course you would. When you came out of your house and you heard this vast crowd all shouting, and somewhere you could hear and you could begin to make out that they were chanting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. You would begin saying, what? What is this? Because you were a Jew and you recognized that those terms were only applied to the Messiah. Could it be that the Messiah has come and I could get in the crowd? The crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Had the crowd done their homework? Not very well. They knew he lived in Nazareth. They were convinced he was the Messiah and they couldn't figure out how, you know, the Bethlehem Nazareth thing, but it didn't make any difference. They were convinced He was the Messiah. And Jesus entered into the temple area and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now listen, Jesus was not starting a revolt and he wasn't putting anyone in danger because if he had, they would have called the temple guards and they would have arrested him and taken him away. Temple guards are not called, but Jesus has a point to make. And we're going to come back to that point a little bit later. And he says... It is written, my house will be called a house of what? But you have made it den of robbers. There's a lesson, and I'm just going to give it to us. It's not really anywhere in your notes. 
can write it in the margin if you want. When people come to church, and I'm not just talking about the church service, but I am talking about the church service and more. When people come to church, it is expected, they expect to meet the living God, whether in prayer or praise or however else. And when they encounter anything less than genuine Christians, we stand in their way. Are you on board with that? When they encounter people who don't talk like Christians, who are not kind and gracious like Christians, who don't tell the truth as a Christian should, who are judgmental and condemning as Christians should not be, and they come to meet with God, oftentimes they never make their way to God. They can't fight through, if I could appropriate the term, the den of robbers to get to God. Yeah, we'll come back to that point in just a minute. Let's go on to scene four. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Does anybody have a problem with that? Does that seem odd and weird? Here are great things happening at church. And somebody is upset. Golly. I have a friend who, said, who would say, it must have been weaned on dill pickle juice. <laughs> How could you get upset at that? We'll tell you in just a minute. They said, do you hear what these children are saying? And they asked him, yes, replied Jesus. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And here's where we just kind of cut straight to the end of the story. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So that's the story. Now let's let's learn some lessons as we draw this to a close. Okay? Number one, church is to be a place of praise, prayer, and healing. It is. This church is to be a place of praise, prayer, and healing. Jesus made that very clear. You think, why would anyone get upset over that? I want you to know that no matter what you struggle with and what scars you bring in, what addictions you might have, what damage, collateral damage you have in your life from your childhood or how you've been treated or some terrible pastor who did some terrible thing to you or, or your parents who disappointed you or what abuse you've received. It doesn't make any difference. It's just whatever the bumps and bruises and scars and wounds are from life. When you come to church and when you begin to get involved with the church, not just coming and putting in your hour and going home. But when you become part of the church of Jesus Christ, he begins to bandage up the wounds and to give you reason to praise. And he begins to give you things to pray about because he begins to bring healing in your life. Do you know how whack even Christians and religious leaders can get. And some of you are going, yeah, I do. Think about this. The lame and the blind 
Why was it that the religious leaders were upset that Jesus was healing the lame and the blind? You've got to see the irony of this. First of all, you've got to see the sadness in it, and then we'll see the irony. The, the Jewish leaders, ever, ever zealous to identify with their heroes, had found a passage of Scripture back out of the life of David when David was looking at this very city of Jerusalem, which in those days was called Jebusalem because the Jebusites lived there until the, until the Jews conquered it and renamed it Jerusalem. But back when it was Jebusalem, David looked at it and said, I want to make that my capital. And, and the people were saying, but there's mountains all around it, and it's built on a mountain, and, and there's a wall that goes around it, and it's fortified. There's like no way we're ever going to get in there. And David looked at his followers, and he said to them, don't you realize that those people are like, lame and blind people, because God is not on their side. In fact, let's go up and let's remove those lame and blind Jebusites from that city and take it for God. Now, you know what the religious leaders did? They said, if we're going to honor David, we should never allow lame and blind people into the temple area. Hello? So they wouldn't. You know what's great about this crowd? It had lame and blind people in it. And there were thousands and thousands of people. And when they all rushed into the temple area for the first time in their lives, the lame and the blind people snuck in with them. That was pretty awesome, don't you think? For the first time, they could get in there where God was. And they could connect with God in a way they'd never been able to. And when the Pharisees and the religious leaders saw, they went, Ah, you're dishonoring David. You let those people in here. Now here's where the irony comes. Jesus says, Oh, you have a problem with lame and blind people? I do too. Be healed. (laughs) Now where's the lame and the blind? You see them? I don't see any lame and blind people. And then they were mad he healed them in the temple. That's awesome. Because Jesus is toying with mere human beings. Because he wants them to see that he is the Son of God. Lesson number one. Lesson number two. Jesus is both a powerful conqueror and a peaceful ruler. Powerful conquerors always rode into town on a horse. And the Bible does portray Jesus on a white horse in the book of Revelation on more than one occasion because he is a powerful conqueror. And friend, for you and me, that means there's hope because no matter what struggle you bring to him, no matter what enemy you bring to him, no matter what thing has risen up and taken control of your life, Jesus is a powerful conqueror who can defeat it. Is that true? Absolutely true. Is a powerful conqueror. But I want you to think about this. If a powerful conqueror comes to town and he conquers, but he doesn't rule so well, is that a great thing? No, that's not so great. Jesus not only can conquer whatever is in your life, once you allow him to conquer it, he brings in a peaceful rule. Two years ago, the verse that God gave me for the entire year 
You want to hear? It was only the beginning of the verse. And it reads like this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. That's the peaceful rule of Jesus. Which is why, friends, when the king came in peace, he always came riding on a donkey. When he came to conquer, he came riding on a horse. Jesus made it very clear. It was so important that 400 years before Jesus was born, God prophesied through Zechariah. 700 years before Jesus was born, God prophesied through Isaiah that the King of Kings would come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and not just a donkey, on the colt of a donkey. Is that pretty peaceful? Friend, it doesn't get any more peaceful than that. Third, and this is one I want to leave us with today. Neither of those, neither number one or number two is possible until we allow Jesus to clean house. Did you know, I know, in my life, there's some tables that Jesus wants to overturn. You want to know why Jesus overturned the tables? Because the people who were there in the lobby of the temple were supposedly supplying a needed service for people who came to worship God. Because as the Old Testament required, they had to pay a temple tax. People came from all over the world. And so these guys were, were sitting there in the lobby and they were to exchange your foreign currency for the temple currency so you could pay the temple tax. And they also recognized that people came from all over the world to worship God and part of worshiping God was animal sacrifices. And it was a little difficult to bring a lamb with you from a foreign country. So they provided a service where they would sell you a sacrificial lamb, one that was without spot and blemish and it was one year old and all the things that you needed in order to bring it in and sacrifice it. The only problem was they charged exorbitantly for that service because they knew you had to have it. You know, history records the high priest himself regularly made a million dollars a year from that market. What do you think God thought about that? He turned over some tables. Yeah. And he drove those animals out with a whip. He was saying, not in my house. Friend, if you want Jesus to be Lord of your life, you have to open your heart because there are going to be some tables he's going to turn over. You know what he's going to say? Not in my house. Not where I live. Not in your heart. You want me to come and rule here? you got to let me clean house. I want you to take the card that Kevin asked you to take a while ago. Oftentimes, there are things that we will send you out and say, this week, do this or do this or do this. Well, this is not something for you to accomplish, but I want to tell you, it will be so fruitful in your life. There's just two things on the back of that card, and you'll see them also at the bottom of your teaching notes. And the first is, I will set aside, I'm going to reserve 15 minutes this week to reflect on Jesus as my conquering king. 
For those of you who are Christians, you've decided to become followers of Christ. Take some time to look back over your life and to realize and, and, and to relish the victories that God has brought in your life and the wonderful things he's done and bless him and praise him as your conquering king. It's not something you're going to do. It's more in being. It's more in sitting in his presence. Then the second one is, I want to set aside 15 minutes to, of my week to reflect on Jesus as my peaceful ruler. It's my sincere desire that all of us will end up this week with a deeper and more personal relationship with Jesus. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.